Welcome to Understanding the Law. Your host for the program is Peter Lamont. Mr. Lamont is a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast discussing a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. And now, your host, Peter Lamont. Well, thank you for joining me. Welcome. It's episode 55, and today's topic is Art as a Business. And we've got with us George Dante. George is the founder of Wildlife Preservations. Before we get to George and introduce him, I'd like to thank our sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Trigger Smart. Trigger Smart is the creator of the patented RFID Smart Gun. For more information about Trigger Smart and its technology, please visit them online at www.triggersmart.com. George, thanks for being on today, and welcome to the show. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I'm very excited about having you on today because some of the issues that um, surround what you do, taxidermy and, um, you know, some of the art and science elements of it, um, it, it has such a negative stigma. I'll tell you, I was talking to some colleagues in preparation for the show, and they said to me, what is this guy like, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? You know, he's out in the garage hacksawing animals. Why would you have somebody like this on? And I explained to them, you know, the various uh, components of what you do, and obviously you're going to get to that and explain what you do, but there are business elements to what you do. You have a successful business that we're going to talk about. There are legal elements to what you do. And I, I think that... Um, you know, before we get into your background, I'd like to just set the stage so that people, you know, don't say to themselves, well, I don't understand, what is this guy playing with dead animals? Let's talk a bit about what taxidermy is, and then we'll get into you and your background, and we'll show people how you've built a business out of a, a marriage of art and science, which is very successful, as I said. You're dealing with celebrities and high-profile museums, and I think that... Uh, you know, people have this image of a crazy taxidermist, but when they go to the Museum of Natural History, they, they you know, don't question, well, where did these animals come from? So I think it's interesting. Can you talk a little bit about taxidermy, the field, the history of it? Sure. You know, what you said really hits the nail on the head. You know, it's a very, very complex art and complex business. And most people, unfortunately, don't understand it. So most of the, the questions and, and the things like that um, are, are, are from a broad spectrum. So the art of taxidermy, of course, is, is very, very old. Uh, and what it is, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a preservation method. Taxidermy came about by the need to preserve specimens other than um, the typical processes that were used at that time. And as it evolved, it went from its very early forms, which we can consider 
um, a study skin used by ornithologists, a crude form of taxidermy, uh, right up until it started to develop into this art form where we wanted the specimens to not only be preserved, but also uh, be preserved in a lifelike manner, uh, an artistic position, and, and then more so into the environments, which are the dioramas that people know of today in most museums. So this is a very, very early art form, and it was commonplace. When we're talking about the age of exploration, when you had people like Darwin uh, going to these places, studying uh, animals, natural world for the very first time, there was a need to preserve these specimens in order to bring them back. And um, taxidermy was a requirement. Um, Darwin was a taxidermist. All of the great naturalists through history were taxidermists. And it was a very essential part of their, uh, of their job. And as it, as it got older, there were several taxidermists through history uh, that changed it in several different ways. Most notably, we have taxidermists like Carl Akeley, uh, who was considered the, mo the father of modern taxidermy. Um, before him, we have William Hornaday. Um, we have guys like Dr. James L. Clark. I mean, these are incredible men through history that if you go in and you read about them, these were not only taxidermists, but they were artists, they were naturalists, they were scientists, they were unbelievable people. And when you, you started taxidermy, you had very crude methods of literally stuffing skins, which is what most people think of today. When you ask people what is taxidermy, it's stuffing a dead animal, which, again, in its very crude forms, it started out very similar to that, but then evolved. When we first saw animals being literally stuffed with cotton, sawdust, raw materials, things like that. Um, we, we then progressed into an age uh, where we see a material called sisal or wood wool, uh, wood fiber. Uh, it's almost like a hemp fiber. Uh, late 1800s, they would take this material and tie it with twine and create this beautiful anatomy of these animals and use that as the replacement of the carcass inside these skins. Um, it was then Carl Akeley who said, well, we need an even more accurate method of reproducing these animals. So he started to do a sculpture. So the skin was removed from the animal. The skeleton was cleaned. It was then re-articulated. And then clay was put over that skeleton to build up the animal's muscle tissue. Once the clay sculpture was done, the clay sculpture was then molded, cast, and a papier-mâché mannequin was made out of that mold. And then the tanned skin was then fit over that papier-mâché mannequin. Very complex. As you can see, I, I, hate to, I hate to ramble on about this, but it's a very complex process, and it's changed so much over the years, uh, and it's a, it's a very intricate art form where you must be a sculptor, you must uh, have great knowledge of anatomy, you have to be a naturalist. Um, it, it's a very, very complex art form. And we're not talking about the, you know, common myth of 
a guy who just goes out, hunts animals, and stuffs their heads, and, you know, you walk into his man cave, and there's hundreds of animals all over the place. We're talking sure. about something that's, that really is not just an art form, but um, a way of preserving natural history for generations. There are extinct animals that we can go and we can see in a museum. So there is a scientific benefit to what you do, and I think that that you know, sort of dispels the myth behind taxidermy. You're not some creepy guy in a, in a, in a garage. <laughs> no, I mean, taxidermy has, um, has so many different people that are, that are into it now, and it, it's being done for so many different reasons. Originally, taxidermy, as you said, started out as a preservation method uh, for science. Um, it then became this way of preserving hunters' trophies. As the sport hunting became more popular, big game hunting became more popular, um, it, was, it was now this method for preserving trophies for private homes. Uh, it is still done that way today, um, but it also is still a method for preserving scientific specimens. Um, it's, it's being done today by a broad spectrum of people. Today, for some reason, taxidermy is hotter than it's ever been before, and this even blows my mind. Um, not only is it still being done for museums and institutions for learning purposes, but it's now have caught the attention of artists, and there seems to be this now reconnection with nature that people are yearning for, and we see artists now learning taxidermy, um, using taxidermy in their artwork. Um, I just went to a, um, a taxidermy quote-unquote competition in Brooklyn a few months ago where there was a line out the door waiting to get into this. There was over 300 people at this event, and I don't think there was one of them that was a full-time taxidermist. I think me and the small group of friends I bought were the only full-time taxidermists there. This was all just artists from the city area that are getting together to enjoy the art form of taxidermy and use it in one way or another in their art. Well, you know, we work with a number of interior designers, and I've seen a trend growing in the industry that a lot of interior designers are utilizing various components of taxidermy in their designs. Absolutely. Uh, now more than ever before, like I said, there's kind of been this rebirth of, uh, of taxidermy, and its popularity has just skyrocketed. So in our business, we've seen uh, so many calls from designers, from artists, from people wanting to learn. Um, this, is, this has been the busiest time we've ever seen right now. Well, that's good. Now, let's talk about your company, Wildlife Preservation. So my understanding is that this, um, this idea of, of the marriage between art and science is something that developed with you at a very young age, um, you know, something you've been doing since you were a kid, and you've transformed this into a, a successful business. So Wildlife Preservation is your company. Tell me a little bit about how you founded the company, um, and, and give me some backstory on the company itself. Well, it started out with a love of science and art as a child, as a, as a, 
as a young boy, I was always outside, uh, always painting, always sculpting from a very, very young age. Um, and I was always around taxidermy. I, I come from a family of naturalists and sportsmen, so there was always a little bit of taxidermy here and there, not a tremendous amount. But when my parents took me to the Museum of Natural History for the first time, uh, there was something that just stuck with me. I was absolutely floored at standing by the glass, looking into those dioramas. It was this this magical moment, I don't mean to sound corny about it, but it was this moment where I knew this is all I ever wanted to do for the rest of my life. Uh, I was so moved by these dioramas uh, that I, I tried to learn everything I possibly could about this art form of taxidermy. And I continued with the art. I still paint. I still sculpt. And while I was uh, younger, I continued on this path of becoming an artist. Um, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I struggled a little bit when I was young where I couldn't decide whether I wanted to be an artist or a biologist. And once again, it brought me back to taxidermy. It's kind of this combination of the two. So when I was in high school, I, I, started, uh, I started doing taxidermy more and more. Uh, I actually started practicing taxidermy when I was seven years old, did my first taxidermy piece at the age of seven. And when I was in high school, uh, I started this to a point where I wanted to try to make a part-time business out of this. So I was lucky to have a few uh, friends to uh, trust me with some pieces, uh, and I practiced a lot on my own and decided at the end of high school uh, I would then start to form this company. Uh, let me ask you, let me interrupt you for a second because mm -hmm. I want to ask you mm -hmm. a question about that. Mm -hmm. So you, you're, you've got this, this artistic drive and you've got, um, you know, what would be considered a more obscure form of art, right? Not mm -hmm. traditional painting, sure. sculpting. What gets into your head that says, hey, I can start a business out of this? Because we're talking about you being a young guy, you're in high school, and you say to yourself, I'm going to start a business doing this. What made you think that this business would succeed? Well, I, I was always around taxidermy, and my father at the time um, had, had some taxidermy done by a, an older taxidermist nearby in town, and I remember going to his studio and just falling in love with everything that was there, the art form, him working. And I remember trying to get a job there part-time, and he wouldn't have any of it. Taxidermists were very secretive. They wouldn't let their art form out. They wouldn't teach anyone how to do it. And, and I respected that. So I, I went on my own, and I, and I kind of said to myself, and, and again, with great guidance from my parents, you know, is this a business? Can this happen? I started the business part-time because there was still that in the back of my head that said, you know, maybe this can't happen as a business. I, I, there were very few full-time taxidermists around and very few people making a living at it. So there was always that doubt. I kind of sat on the fence with it. I wanted to do this. My heart yearned to do this, but there was a side of me, uh, and of course my parents trying to push me in the logical direction, that this may not be the best way to make a living. So, again, as I started this company, um, it was more of a part-time thing while I still prepared to go to college. My objective was to go to college, um, continue an art career, and then possibly do taxidermy on a part-time basis or as a hobby.
And then uh, what happened? Did you, did you end up going to college, or did this business grow so quickly? How did that work out? I did. I, I wound up growing the business while in college. I started building a clientele, um, again, small and slow, and I, I went to SVA, School of Visual Arts in New York, and while in school, I was on that path of becoming a commercial artist. This was my goal. I figured when I graduated after four years, I would have my degree, and I would try to go into the commercial art field. While we were there, I was enjoying it. I was painting. I was sculpting, uh, making uh, great connections, just having a great time. And while I was there, I made it known to one of my professors that I did taxidermy. He was completely blown away with this. He was amazed. He said, you have to do some pieces for your portfolio for school. Now, at that time, this clicked in my head that taxidermy was not a recognized art form. I always felt that the art world and the taxidermy world were two complete separate worlds, and Mm -hmm. taxidermy would never be accepted as an art form. Well, right there, he changed that forever for me. He said to me, start doing some pieces. I want to see some. And he encouraged it so much that by my senior year, I was starting to do more and more taxidermy as my portfolio pieces. He kept encouraging it. There was a great positive response from it, and I was, I was just more in love with this now. When I graduated, I had a portfolio out there. I was getting calls to do commercial artwork, and I was um, at home in my studio, like most companies. I started in my parents' basement, uh, working in their, in their house, and... I remember just being in love with, with waking up every morning and doing the taxidermy. I could, I could do a painting. I could do a sculpture. But it did, not, it did not do it for me like the taxidermy did. I was just happier doing this. So at that point, um, I, I said to my parents, I said, I, I need to try to make this work. I need to try to promote this company and see what I can do to try to make it as this. And they were very supportive, um, probably more than I would have been with my child now. <laughs> and they, uh, they, they helped me so much in, in growing this company. And it seemed to just snowball from there. Right. We started getting jobs from more and more clients, and it was all word of mouth. Uh, I focused on the quality of work. From the very beginning, I never wanted to be known as the taxidermist for the sport hunter. I never right. wanted to just spend the rest of my life mounting fish to hang on the wall or a deer head for the wall. I wanted to, to, to bring this, this art form to a higher level, do the best work we can, and make it scientifically accurate. So Let me, let me interrupt you for a second because I want to go yeah. back to one thing before we touch on that. You know, you made two interesting points earlier today. Uh, and we deal with a lot of people that are entrepreneurs and people that say, I want to start a business, I've got a passion for something, um, and they are discouraged along the way. You make two interesting points. The first point you make is that you had a mentor, you had somebody that encouraged you, and I think that, and it doesn't need to be massive encouragement, I think that people who are thinking along the lines of starting their own business they need to get some input from other people because I think most successful businesses started with that one push from someone or that one suggestion. So it doesn't necessarily need to be somebody who says, 
here's your business plan, here's what you should do. It could be as simple as someone saying to you, hey, I think that's a good idea. Or in your case, you had a, a professor that said, put this work into your portfolio. So while you had that mentor, if you will, I'm sure that there were other people who didn't see the value in the art. So the point there is, as you are developing your concept to grow a business, seek out input from other people. Now, George, when you had people say to you, because uh, I'm sure they did, oh, I don't, I don't get that. That's not really art. How did you deal with that? You know, obviously it didn't affect you. You must have compartmentalized it and took from it enough to help you start a business. Exactly. I'm, I, I, there was a lot of people that had a lot of different opinions. And just like you said, you, you really have to look at it from everyone's point of view. And I still do today. I still have people that walk into our studio that say, how could you possibly do this? You know, and don't agree with some of it. Or they agree with certain parts of it and not others. My, I knew where my focus was, and, and I never got off track with that. And, and that was that was my my objective is to just keep moving forward, and you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion. You know, one of the one of the turning point turning point moments in this was I was in college, and I remember just as a young art student, the art scene in New York was just everything you could possibly want it to be. And I remember being in, in classes and the students, you know, asking me about taxidermy and things like that. And, of course, this was, you know, this was not really in vogue at that time. So they're saying, oh, you're, you know, you're taking apart these animals, you're, you're killing these animals, which, of course, I wasn't. You know, this is all these things came about. And I remember for a class assignment, we had to go to a gallery opening. And I don't remember the artist, I don't remember the gallery, but I remember going into this gallery opening and we had to do a report on this show and seeing all these American flags all around this gallery. And as I walked up to them, I noticed they were all out of leather. And as I got further and further into this, I started reading the text. These flags were all made out of human skin. The artist actually took the skin from the back of cadavers, tanned it, dyed it, and sewed American flags into this. And this was his gallery exhibition. I will never forget that day for the rest of my life because I stood there and said, people have a problem with me mounting an animal, recycling an animal that is dead, and making this piece of artwork out of it, but people see this as artwork? This they don't have a problem with? And at that moment, I just I couldn't understand it. And at that moment, I realized that everybody's going to have their own opinion, and right. I'm never going to change that. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's important. You know, I think the other point that you made that I want to touch on now you've disturbed me with the silence of the lambs issue, there. <laughs> right? But, but um, yeah, we're you know we're pigeonholed for that. <laughs> well, the other thing you talked about is, is your passion. You know, you felt it in your heart and you wanted to move forward with it. And I think that that too is something that entrepreneurs need to understand. That if you have a passion for something, you have to go forward with that passion because regardless of what mainstream career or what other direction people would prefer that you go in. If you've got this yearning, as you described it, to move forward with something that you are passionate about, that's never going to go away. And if it does go away, then you've done a very good job of destroying what, you know, 
direction you probably should have gone in to just simply conform to the masses. And that passion is something you've got to exploit and you've got to explore. And that doesn't mean that because you have the passion you're going to succeed. You have to do all of the other things that come along with it. Preparation, learning, talking to people, getting advice, you know, changing your, um, your movements with respect to how you're developing that passion into a business. You know, bad things are going to happen. People are going to disagree with you. You have to be able to adjust and say, all right, we're going to move in this direction, but you still have that focus on the passion. And I'm sure that as your business grew, you have made shifts to correct things to say, well, we should start moving in this direction. And you're, you're probably always evolving and changing. Absolutely. And, and I think that's the key to success is to evolve and change and, uh, and never, ever lose sight of why you're doing this uh, and, and to keep that love. And I tell people that all the time. I'm saying the day I wake up in the morning and there's the slightest inkling that I don't want to do this anymore, I will get out of it because right now I wake up every morning and I cannot wait to get to work. I absolutely love every second of it. Uh, and it's hard. It's not easy. It's difficult. Um, but you, you have to have that burning desire. With that burning desire and that passion, I think you could do anything. You know, and unfortunately, I would say a good 85 to 90% of the people in the workforce today just go to work to get a paycheck. They hate what they do, and that's no way to live. So no, it's if not. You've, if you're an entrepreneur, if you've got that entrepreneurial spirit, don't suppress it. Explore it. I'm not saying be foolish and jump into something without talking to people and, and getting your uh, ducks in a row, but don't just give up on it because then you're going to be like the mindless drones going to work every day. So Absolutely. Something that, something that you had said, and I had cut you off, you were talking about um, your level of commitment to quality in what you do, and that is so important because whether you are in a services industry or a product-based industry, if you want your company and business to succeed, you have got to do a few things. One of them is make sure you pay attention to your customers or clients. And the other thing is to maintain superior levels of quality in your work. So you were, you were starting to talk about that. I cut you off. Let's go back to that. You were telling us about the commitment you've made to superior quality. The quality to me is everything, and, and just like you said, if for a successful business, that is the key. Um, for me, I'm a competitive person by nature, so I'm always looking at what the competition's doing, what's out there, uh, and always striving to make my personal work even better. I'm always trying to educate myself, continue the learning. So for me, making sure we offer our clients something that they cannot get somewhere else is the, the number one goal. I mean, because what is going to keep them coming here? Um, today, there's more competition in this business. Um, today, we, we're, we're having more people that are getting hit with the economy. So uh, a lot of times what we're doing is a recreational dollar for them. Uh, with museums having budgets cut, uh, it's the, we have the same issues. So for us, we have to give them a reason to keep coming here. And to me, that's, that's the quality, the quality and the service. That's the other thing. For me, that's a, 
that's a little personal pet peeve of mine. Uh, when you work with some other companies today and, and the service is just, just dead, uh, for me, the service is everything. When they call here, we want them to feel like family. And, and we actually had a client tell me that once before. I actually answered the phone for him one day and uh, chatting with him, he said, you know, he said, I've got to tell you something. He said, every time I call you to check on the progress of my piece, I feel like I'm calling one of my old college friends. He said, you just have the greatest personality for just talking to me and, and walking me through everything like I'm having a casual conversation. And I don't know. That's maybe just the way I was raised. I had a great family, great people, persons. <laughs> I don't know. But to me, that's important. You, you want to call a business and, one, talk to a live person. Two, um, get the answers you want. Don't get shuffled around. And, and three, get a great product when it's all over. Yeah, you know, it, it's, uh, it's interesting because there are so many people that I've spoken to who have either had complaints about businesses or growing their own business. And, um, you know, one of, one of the main complaints or concerns with people is, well, I don't want to go to a place, whether it's product or service-based, that has a great product or service, but the people there are unfriendly and nasty. I've heard it with doctors. I've heard it with lawyers. I've heard it with, you know, retail establishments. If, if your product is great, but to deal with you is so unbearable, nobody's going to want to come to you, regardless of the quality of your work. So that, you know, 360-degree uh, approach where you do high-quality work, but then you also have that high commitment to customer service, I think is not just... Um, necessary, but critical to the success of a small business or large business. I agree, and I, I agree a hundred percent. You're working. Uh, you're working with a company. You're spending your hard-earned money. The last thing you want to do is go there and get beat up emotionally. Um, and for us, you know, Eric, that's one of the hardest things to do is to keep up the personal service with a company because we get so busy. Uh, and no matter whether we have someone answering the phone or I'm answering the phone, it's difficult. It is very difficult to keep that up because I can't return all the emails as soon as I get them. I can't answer the phone every time it rings. Um, it's, it's a very difficult thing. When you're running a small business, it's very easy, I think, to get overwhelmed and very easy to let all the, let all the calls go to voicemail or return all the emails uh, three months from now. I mean, I think it's very easy to get lost in that. And that is the one thing I, I try my best to be on top of, but it's a very, very difficult thing because I can literally – just sit in my office all week and return phone calls and emails. And in all actuality, I have to be out in the shop working as well. So I think as a small business, that's a great challenge. It definitely is. And, you know, now with social media, there are so many other avenues that you have to commit time to. Um, it's not as simple in this economy, in this day and age, to, you know, do what people did 30 years ago, run a, a Yellow Pages ad and then just wait for calls to come in. You know, there's a lot of active engagement that needs to go on with small businesses, and, uh, I, you know, it does create a sense of overwhelm, but if you want to be successful, you've got to put the time in, and whether it's hiring the staff to support you or finding time to do it yourself, if you really want to succeed, it's something that you've got to do. And, um, you know, with social media, it allows businesses the opportunity to not just advertise, 
but to interact with people. And that's such an important facet to business in, in the modern age. It is, and it's one of the things that I will say I do lack in. Um, I, was, I was talking with some colleagues uh, not too long ago, and they're saying, well, you have to be up on Instagram. You know, you have to be up on Facebook. You, you have to be on Twitter. And I, I'm just, I remember feeling this self, sense of being overwhelmed because I could, I could barely return all the phone calls and the emails now. You know, we're not at the point in our company where we can hire someone on to take care of all the social media or whether it would be smart to hire someone on to, to, hire, to take care of all this. So for me, it's, it's doing this myself. And, and I sit and I look at this, I'm like, if someone is on Twitter and they're on Facebook and, and they're, they're posting these photos on Instagram, when do they work? You know, how do you, how do you manage this? And for me, we're always so busy in the studio here, I just haven't figured out how to manage that. So I am, I am definitely one of those people that are behind in the social media, but it is absolutely necessary. Yeah, it, it is a challenge. And, you know, at some point I think that as companies grow, uh, they need to look for assistance with social media. But, but you know, you, you made an interesting comment. You said, I don't know if it's worth hiring someone. And that's really a challenge for companies because at some point, you know, what you're putting out on social media is, is part of you. It's part of the discussion that you personally want to have with people. And to entrust that to other people who might not share your vision, it becomes potentially problematic because your vision's not the same as others. So it is definitely a challenge, but something that, that small businesses and mid-sized companies have to face today. Let's, uh, let's shift focus for a second because I want to show um, or highlight to our listeners some of the legal issues that surround the field of taxidermy. And I, I'm just going to go through a few of the, the federal laws that you guys have to deal with You've got the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, uh, Convention International Trade and Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. That's a mouthful. Um, so there's these, all these laws that you have to deal with. In addition, uh, and you know better than I do because you're in it, my understanding is that you have to obtain a license from the state as well as be licensed under federal law. You need a federal taxidermy uh, permit. Mm-hmm. It so is that's a lot of yeah. law. It is. It is extremely complicated. And keeping up on this is a full-time job in itself. And the laws change daily. So for us, um, the state of New Jersey does not have a taxidermy license, meaning you do not need a license to practice taxidermy in the state of New Jersey. If you want to work on migratory birds, then you do need a federal migratory bird permit, which must be obtained from U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and it will cover you to be able to work on migratory birds both at the state and federal level. Uh, and that's what you – so we're not state licensed, but for migratory birds, we're federally licensed. Right, and now, you're not state licensed because New Jersey doesn't require it. Other jurisdictions, other states do. So, I mean, you're just to – so nobody misunderstands. You are properly licensed. Your business is licensed. So there's no issue. People have to understand that in New Jersey, that license is not required. Correct, correct. We have all the, the proper business licenses, but we do not have to have a specific license for taxidermy. 
Now, some of these laws seem, well, long in title, uh, but mm-hmm. also very complicated. But from my understanding, it, it's more of a regulatory function because we're trying to protect endangered species. We're trying to protect uh, the sale and possession rights of certain animals. So as I look through some of these laws, one of the things that jumped out at me is the fact that when you sell a, um, a prepared animal species or, 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 you know, however you would describe it, art form, to mm-hmm. someone, sometimes depending upon the animal that you're selling, the person you're selling to needs to have certain rights and licenses and permits to even have that animal. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Selling wildlife is extremely complicated, and you really must know the law inside and out before you sell wildlife or before you purchase wildlife. Um, So for us, we need to make sure that we're constantly on top of that. And each state is different. And, of course, there's the federal laws that are different. So um, you, you have to keep on top of both of them because some of them just include parts, whereas we're not even talking about the total animal itself. Some of them are literally just parts. Yeah, and um, that, it, that's, it, go ahead. In New Jersey, for example, just just to give you one example, um, you know, we cannot sell white-tailed deer antlers in New Jersey. So one of the most common things a taxidermy studio will mount is a deer head uh, from a sport hunter. Uh, In most states, if you get stuck with that deer head, which, you know, several of the taxidermists out there are every year, a gentleman brings a deer head in to be mounted, and he, for one reason or another, never picks it up. Um, the taxidermist, uh, all he can do to recoup some of his funds is to sell the head. Well, in New Jersey, we cannot sell whitetail antlers, um, so we cannot sell that head. And that's, that's a measure of protection for the animal, I would assume. It's a measure of protection for the animal, but it's, it's kind of strange how it's, it, it, it's broken up from state to state. Because you cannot sell it in New Jersey, but you can sell it in Pennsylvania, you can sell it in New York. Right. So uh, a lot of these laws are, are very old. They've been on the books for one reason or another. And we actually, we actually met with Fish and Game many years ago when I was involved in the, uh, the Garden State Taxidermy Association. And it's very interesting to hear how some of these laws actually came about. Some of them have great stories behind them. Well, you know, the one thing that I think people can take away from this, even if they're not in the field of of taxidermy, is that if you are starting a business, there are so many working parts to that business and so many components, and there's really no way that you're going to be able to do everything on your own without some support. You know, you really need to have people on the outside to support you. You need to have a lawyer. You need to have an accountant. You need to have some working knowledge of what you're getting yourself into before you get there. Because, you know, the worst thing to do is to put all this time and effort into a business without having these support people to guide you, and you find yourself being fine. You know, I'll tell you a quick story. Mm -hmm. There was a woman in New Jersey who started a home-based cooking business. She was selling cupcakes, and she was cooking out of her kitchen. And she started the business, registered, got the licenses that she needed in the state. Everything was great. 
And one of, of her colleagues at, at work who became, uh, I don't know, very agitated with her, maybe she was too noisy or annoying at work, who knows, but they called the state and they told the state that she was working um, out of her kitchen, which is illegal, because in New Jersey you need to have a commercial space in order to sell baked goods. And this woman was shut down. And all the money that she put into this, all the effort, was just brought to a halt. Had she taken the steps of learning what she needed to do and got some guidance from people, I think it would be a different story. And that's something that, you know, in your field, it's so legal intensive. There are so many things that you have to know. If you get somebody that doesn't have that sort of support from an accountant or an attorney, you're going to end up selling a deer that you're not permitted to do. And I would imagine that the fines are, are relatively high. Is that, is that fair to say? The fines and the, the consequences, along with wildlife laws, are terrible. Um, they can literally get to the point where they will shut you down, absolutely. So for us, being on top of this is absolutely essential. Uh, you know, one of the things um, that you mentioned is that, you know, if you look at these laws, they're, they're very long. Some of them are very complicated. We deal with some museums and learning institutions that don't know these laws. So they're under certain restrictions, and then they come to us, and we're under certain restrictions. We now have to figure out how we can work together legally. So it can become tremendously complicated, and that is something that uh, I, I think a lot of people would never know about our end of our businesses, yes. is how to make this work. I mean, at any given time, we need to retain about three lawyers. Well, you know, I just named uh, four or five laws, and you look at other businesses, and the likelihood that those businesses have to comply with that number of laws is very low. So it is a very, very uh, interesting field. Uh, you know, one thing that's been going on, I know you were interviewed um, in, in, I believe it was a newspaper or whatnot, about roadkill poaching. And that's something <laughs> yeah. that, you know, I'll tell you, I see it all the time. Like, you go down Route 80, uh, you know, you go out on 78 towards Pennsylvania, and you see these deer carcasses along the side of the road, and they're decapitated. <laughs> and, you know, you know that people are out there, and they're cutting off the heads of deers for trophies or for antlers or, or, or whatnot. And in New Jersey, that's illegal. It is. Now, what do you think about that? You know, I, I see both sides of the law. I, I see where we have to restrict the, the possession of wildlife, taking of wildlife, I understand that. And then on the flip side, I say, this is an animal that was killed accidentally. It's going to waste. It's basically going to sit there on the side of the road. Why not recycle it? Why not let someone take it and utilize it? Well, they've changed that law a little bit. If you, you can actually pick up a roadkill deer and take it, but it's for consumption only. Once you have that deer processed and consume it, you cannot possess the hide, the parts, or the antlers, which is most people do not know. We have guys that will pick up a roadkill, get the roadkill permit from the state police, and think they can have that head mounted. They cannot. They cannot possess that portion of it. So we say, why not change the law again? Why not issue them another permit, so they can take the antlers because it's kind of it's 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 kind of ridiculous if you think about it because the guy is 
not going to take this animal off the road. And now what is he going to do with the hide in the head? I mean, is he going to bury this in his backyard? Is he going to incinerate it? What is he going to do with this now? He's not allowed to possess it. He's not going to box it up and bring it back to the state police. They don't want it. So what happens to it? So we think maybe down the road there could be some kind of law where another permit is issued and they can mount it or do something with it. We see it as recycling wildlife because it's not only deer. You can... You know, you can't pick up a, a, a raccoon on the road. You can't pick up a squirrel on the road. You cannot possess any roadkill in the state of New Jersey. And other states, you can. Mm-hmm. When, when you, you're driving down the highway and you see a, a, an animal carcass on the side of the road, what do you do if you're going to pick that up for consumption? You pull over and you call the police and they issue you a permit on the spot? How does that work? You know, I'm not 100% clear on this myself because I've heard both sides. I've heard that you can call the state police and someone will come out there and issue you a permit. Or I've heard other people say that you can take the animal, bring it to the local police, and they will issue the permit there. So I'm I'm not 100% sure. I can't say I've never done it myself, so I really don't know. But, you know, that's another thing that needs to be figured out because if – in fact, you have to call the police and they must come out to issue the permit and you pick it up and transport it to them. Now you're charged with transporting illegal wildlife. The whole thing sounds sort of silly because if you're going to have to call the police, you're going to have to waste the time of the police to come out for a, a dead animal where they could be doing something that's a little more important and... You know, the whole process seems so long and ridiculous, you know, on top of which there are times when, when uh, DOT will have to come out and they'll have to remove the animal. So I would say, just for my own opinion, why not allow people to do that? My only thought would be the safety of the people pulling over on the side of the road to pick up the carcass. So Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it has but, some issues, but I agree with you 100%. It's very interesting because, uh, you know, you see it all the time. And, you know, you, you have the animal on the side of the road. For those people who don't think that hunting is uh, particularly humane, certainly I, I can't imagine anyone would argue that it's improper to remove a dead animal. I mean, it's not like you you hunted it. So... It's a very interesting uh, argument. Do you, are you aware of any legislation that's in the works to change this, or has this pretty much been a, a steady law for the last few years? When I was uh, on the board for our Garden State Taxidermist Association, we had looked at several of these laws. And as a small association of artists, um, you know, it came down to needing to hire an attorney and, and kind of, you know, try to get into this now and we never did because we didn't have the funding to do this i mean it would be you know as you know kind of uh a, a monumental task to try to change these laws now so we kind of just abandoned it and hoped that someone would pick this up at some point because we feel it's a, a form of recycling recycling wildlife you know taxidermists used to joke around and said that new jersey values an aluminum can more than it does its wildlife because yeah. you're, you have to recycle an aluminum can, but you can leave that animal to, to essentially rot on the side of the road. You know, the state of Pennsylvania actually picks up any roadkill, any animal that's killed illegally or confiscated, 
Fish and Game keeps all these animals, and they have an auction every year where these animals are then auctioned off to taxidermists. And to me, that is one of the greatest ideas. What better way to bring in revenue from these animals that would have essentially been destroyed? Yeah, it certainly is is interesting, and, and we'll have to see what develops there. Um, I, we're going to you know, be wrapping up in a second. I want to let you have some time to tell people how they can find out more information. But I do have to ask one more question, mm-hmm. and I've been hesitant to ask you this because I really don't want you to tell me, no, it's not true. I know you've done work at uh, you know, the Museum of Natural History. Please tell me that when the lights go off, the animals do come alive. <laughs> You know what? I was made not to comment on that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, George. George, tell us where people can get more information about you, about wildlife preservation, how they can contact you, um, where they can see your work online. They can go to our website at www.wildlifepreservations.com. Um, our studio is in Woodland Park, New Jersey, um, where uh, they can give us a call at 973-890-1516. Uh, we're happy to answer any questions and help people out. We have people that contact us that are looking to get into taxidermy as a hobby. Um, we do run some classes from time to time. Um, we do seminars. You know, we, we try to help anybody out and support the art form, so we're always always willing to, uh, to basically educate people any way we can. We do tours and things like that for Boy Scouts. Um, you know, we're, we're always willing to help out. Well, that's, that's really great. I think that that element of, of you know, giving back to the community is a, is a wonderful thing. Um, for those of you listening, um, either through the uh, iTunes download or live, when we put the video portion of this interview up, I will include links down in the comments section with all of George's contact information as well as a link to the website. So I encourage you, uh, if you don't have a pen and paper to write it down now, go to the YouTube channel and click on the links. It will take you right to George. George, thank you very much for being on today. It was very interesting, very informative. I wish you continued success, and uh, you know, we hope to speak to you in the future. Thank you so much, Eric. It was my pleasure. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So we just had, uh, had uh, George Dante on from Wildlife Preservations. Very interesting. Uh, a lot of, of things that I think uh, people don't know about the field of taxidermy and uh, probably don't even consider that it is really an art form. It's very interesting. So I encourage you to check out George Dante online. Um, again, all the links will be posted in the comments section of the video once it is posted. Um, I want to talk about a few other things before we uh, shut down today. Uh, I want to remind you that on Monday, June 9th, we're going to have Lucian Greaves on. He is a representative from the Satanic Temple, and uh, this is going to be fascinating. He's going to be talking about religious freedom. Uh, For those of you who don't know, there was an issue that came out of Oklahoma uh, where Religious organizations were permitted to place certain religious statues um, within a governmental property. And the Satanist groups decided that it was only fair for them to include uh, a statue of, of Satan 
And when the government found out that this was the application that was uh, submitted, they then quickly changed their mind about what could be um, you know, placed on government property and whatnot. And it's very interesting because while a lot of people might not believe in the satanic ways, um, you know, I, I certainly am not a Satanist, um, but the idea of, of the, the legality of it is interesting. And, and how can you have rights for one and not for the other? And so it's very fascinating, very interesting. Um, I would encourage people to call into that show to ask some questions and to, uh, to challenge what's going on. Uh, the call-in number is 347-855-8831. Definitely put this on your calendar. Call in. If you have questions, you're not going to be able to call in live then you should send us your questions either on our Facebook page, through Twitter, or comments on our YouTube channel. Um, and we will ask those questions on air. But, but it, it certainly is an interesting topic, and I encourage you to uh, put some comments up and some questions so that we can have a very lively discussion with Mr. Lucian Greaves. The other thing I'd like to mention is the YouTube channel. Uh, the YouTube channel has almost 100 videos at this point, and every episode of Understanding the Law is up there. So uh, I, I would encourage you to go to the YouTube channel and click on the subscribe link so that you are notified when new videos are posted. Um, you can go back. You can look at the videos. There's links in the comments section for certain websites and some of our guests. There's also a very uh, good amount of information from our guests concerning things like the law, starting a business, developing a business, social media. So it's a really good place to go to seek out information from those people who have already succeeded, and it's a good place for young entrepreneurs to look. In addition, we have segments and series of uh, law basics where we talk about basic elements of the law that are uh, important for people to understand. What is a summary judgment motion? What is a complaint? How do you start a lawsuit? So it's basic information, but it's good quality information. So many times I hear people going online and searching for answers to legal questions and not being able to find something reliable. So you can look on the YouTube channel. The other area that I'd like to talk about, the other thing that I'd like to bring to your attention is, again, our free app. The app is available exclusively on the iTunes store, and it's available for the iPhone as well as the iPad. And a second ago, I mentioned the fact that people will routinely check online for answers to legal questions, and you're never really sure if you're getting the right answer. Uh, with this app, which again is free, you can download it and ask questions directly to an attorney at our office via your phone or iPad. And it's a, it's a free service. So you can ask your, your legal question, you know, what's a deposition, and you're going to get an attorney to answer that question for you, and now you don't have to guess or wonder if the information you found online is accurate. So it's a free service, a free app. You should take advantage of it. In addition to the Ask a Lawyer feature, there is uh, access to all of the podcasts, all of the radio programs, as well as access to the video library and other legal information that you might find helpful. 
such as statute of limitations, both in criminal and civil matters. So I encourage you to download that. Uh, I want to remind everybody again, Monday, June 9th, interview with Lucian Greaves from the Satanic Temple. Please make sure to get your comments in, your questions. And the other thing that we're going to talk about, so look for it on our social media pages. We are going to be having on as guest Cord McCoy. Uh, he is well known for his participation along with his brother in the Amazing Race. And we're going to be auctioning off, uh, and I'll post the rules for this, this giveaway, an autographed cowboy hat from Cord McCoy. So this is very exciting. Um, look for the rules sometime tomorrow to be posted. And, uh, you know, I encourage you to look and, 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 you know, follow us because we're going to start doing some giveaways, some things that uh, might be interesting to a lot of people. So this is all uh, very exciting. Follow us online. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. And, and, you know, you know the rest. So I'd like to thank you for joining me. I'd like you to tune in on Monday and remember that there's power in understanding the law. there was a freshly brewed McCafe coffee. It was made with 100% Arabica beans, yet something was missing. Fear not, in the distance, a sausage McMuffin with egg rides toward the sunrise in quest for breakfast. The perfect pair met at McDonald's, and mornings were happy forever after. Right now, get a $1 small coffee and a $2 sausage McMuffin with egg from the $1, 2, $3 menu. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal.